0: Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Howdy. Howdy. It's the first time I've ever done that. It felt really good. I like that so much. So fun to be here. Um, you know, I, I've been in Houston since 2000, so 21 years, and I don't think I've ever been to uh, RUF at, uh, at Texas A&M, and uh, so many of my favorite people, I think, that I love have come through here um, as students, as campus ministers, and uh, it's, it's really, I'm, I'm excited to be here. So uh, thank you, is what I want to say, for, for letting me come and just be a part of what y'all are doing here. Um, I'm going to read here in just a second, Psalm 125. So I'm gathering that y'all are in a, uh, I'm hoping, because th- this will make a lot more sense, if y'all are in a, uh, a series on the songs of Ascent, is that correct? Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm guessing correctly. So, so Psalm 125, of course, is one of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and just, uh, it'll be up there, right? Okay. So follow along with me now as I read God's Word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for how um, your word is used in, in worship, in times of joy, but also in times of sorrow, and in all of those in between times. Um, your word is is good and right and true and will not return void. So I do pray, Father, that this evening that we would give attention to your word, uh, all of us, and that you would be at work uh, meeting us where we need to be met and changing us where we need to be changed. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Looking at those mountains, he said, you know, I think that looks like a little bit more than half a day. At least that's, that's what I imagine uh, Meriwether Lewis saying uh, to William Clark as they stood right in front of the Rocky Mountains in what is now Montana. What had happened was in 1804, President Thomas Jefferson had commissioned Meriwether Lewis to find what they called the Northwest Passage, which in their heads, was a way to get all the way from Missouri to the Pacific Ocean only navigating waterways. Their theory was that you could get on the Missouri River in St. Louis, you could go upstream, and somewhere up there in the northwest, you could connect to another river, the Columbia River, and it would take you uh, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Now, they knew somewhere, because people had told stories, that somewhere along the way, they were gonna run into some hills. But their idea was, is that they would have a waterway that would cut through those hills, you know, and and basically they were thinking, it'll take us half a day to get beyond those hills. Well, they got to those hills, and those hills turned out to be the Rocky Mountains. And instead of taking them half a day to get through the Rocky Mountains, it took them about a month, and one of the people that they were with died. Uh, it, It was so much bigger than they thought. And even as they probably came up to it from a distance, they thought, ah, this is manageable. And they got a little bit closer and said, well, this is like maybe a little bit bigger than I thought. Then they got even closer and they thought, this could be, you know, interesting. And then they got in them and they were in it, you know, and they were in it. Maybe you've had that experience before. I don't know how many of you have been to the mountains, maybe, you know, in Colorado, maybe driving east to west. And, you know, it's all flat, and then all of a sudden the mountains rise up right in front of you, even if you've been to the airport in Denver. You can see it's just like kind of this wall of mountains. And it looks from a distance like something that's in two dimensions. It goes up, and it goes north and south. And you're thinking from a distance, like, oh, I see a pass there. I just go over that pass, and I'll be on the other side. You know, Lewis and Clark saw one. They're like, hey, we'll be at the Pacific Ocean. But not so much. When you get closer to them, you think, man, these things are bigger than I thought. They go back a little ways, and then you get into the Rocky Mountains, and you're like, is, is, is there any end to this? These things are so much bigger than I thought. Where are they even in? Well, Psalm 125 is inspired by another group of travelers who were approaching another set of mountains. And I'm sure, as William has already talked about multiple times, Psalm 125 is in that group of 15 psalms known as the Songs of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent were used liturgically in the lives of the people of Israel. As they would go to Jerusalem for the major feast that they celebrated, uh, they would have to go up a hill to Jerusalem and then up another hill to the temple. And as they were going up those hills, you know, into the city of Jerusalem, as they were going up those hills into the temple, these are the psalms that they would sing. It's very likely, in fact, that on Palm Sunday, as Jesus and his disciples and all those people who were following him were walking towards Jerusalem for Jesus the last time, the songs of ascent were on their lips. And so these were literal songs of ascent. They would sing them while they were ascending, but also spiritually their songs of ascent, preparing themselves and reminding themselves of who the God is they have come to celebrate and worship. But mountains also loom in the background in in a darker way in Psalm 125 because there are fears and vulnerabilities that we all have as human beings those things that come up in our lives and make us ask man where do these things end this is deeper than i thought it was going to be what's on the other side is there another side can't even get to the other side and you know that's true we are surrounded by all kinds of fears and all kinds of vulnerabilities as we sit here this evening Russia has invaded a part of Ukraine. They're threatening, I haven't even watched the news today. I have no idea what they're doing, but they're threatening to invade all of Ukraine, a full-scale invasion. Food and gas and clothes and everything keep costing more and more and more and more. If you go onto social media and you look at the news or you watch the news, you're gonna hear people screaming at you all the time and telling you that our country, and the entire world is, is falling apart all around us. And, it, 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 and all for opposing reasons. And depending on who you're listening to, they're going to have entirely different reasons with entirely different good guys and entirely different bad guys. And it's not only external. You might be here tonight just simply discouraged in some way. You may be here deeply discouraged. Maybe about how your semester's going, your performance in your classes, or your job prospects for the summer, or you know for even after graduation um, a, a relationship that you're struggling in something that's just not working out or maybe it's deeper down and, and and spiritual that you want to have a life of faith but but it scares you to have a life of faith that that, that you think that to give your life to Christ may not be worth it it may just be too risky putting the parties in the sexuality and the striving for position and prestige and risk, and these are all things that are held in high value in a university setting. So yeah, we're surrounded by all kinds of vulnerabilities, but the question that Psalm 125 asks us to ask ourselves is not this, do we face vulnerabilities in this life? You and I both know that the answer to that is yes. The question is, how do I face the vulnerabilities in this life. How do I face them? It's an entirely different question. And the psalmist gives us an answer here in Psalm 125, that you face the uncertainties and the vulnerabilities of your life through the security that you have in God alone. You face the uncertainties and the vulnerabilities of your life through the security that you have in God alone. We see this unfolded in Psalm 125, in the headings of God's protection and God's promise. So first, let's look at God's protection. You see, God doesn't want you to deny reality. He does not want you to deny that evil and wickedness exist in the world. We know that evil and wickedness exist in the world. We see it all, all over the place. We see it in our own lives and in our own hearts. But he wants you to face the danger and the reality of evil not with fear but with confidence and not confidence in yourself but confidence in God alone to meet the challenges that come your way so we see this in Psalm 125 in, in two places so God protects us from dangers from without and God protects us from dangers from within God protects you from dangers from without uh, this is in verse 1. The psalmist is focusing his attention as he's you know, contemplating this, this song in his head. He's focusing his attention on the city of Jerusalem, which is up a hill, and he's looking at it. He may be staring at the temple, which is at the highest point in the city of Jerusalem. And he's focusing his attention there. This is the mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion. This is the mountain established by God himself. This is the place when this was originally written that the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. The great symbol of God's presence among his people. And the psalmist says, those who trust in the Lord are like that mountain. Established and firm and shall not be moved. Unmoved in the face of danger. Abiding. But how? In our own strength? No, not at all. Look at verse 2. Jerusalem, you see, is itself a mountain that is actually surrounded by other mountains that are even higher than it is. So you are secure. You're confident in God's protection of you, not because you're strong enough to defeat your enemies, but because God himself surrounds you. God surrounds you and protects you, and he is strong enough to defeat your enemies. He surrounds you not only now, but the psalmist says, from this time forth and forevermore. That is serious protection. A few years ago, my daughter, when she was in high school, came into the den on a Saturday afternoon where I was sitting watching TV and I was watching TV and I was just I was crying. I was crying, and and it wasn't because I was watching the Texas Longhorns play football. It was something else. It was penguins. Penguins, and not just any penguins, it was emperor penguins in Antarctica, trying to incubate their eggs in sub-freezing temperatures while also trying to avoid freezing to death from the cold Arctic wind, and also while trying to not be eaten by polar bears who may not have had enough to eat and woke up from their hibernation and may go looking for a snack. I mean, honestly, it's enough to make any grown man cry, right? because this is how it works. After penguins mate, the female penguin lays an egg that's about the size of a softball, and then the female says, I'm done, I'm out, I'm going to look for food. And so the female heads off, and the males are left with the eggs, and they kind of halfway stand on the eggs, and they halfway kind of you know, pull them up and then fold them in their, you know, in their fat and in their, uh, in their fur, and they just sit there. They sit there basically for nine weeks. They don't eat or drink or do anything. They just sit there and incubate that egg. And all of this happens in the middle of winter. Nine weeks of sub-freezing temperatures, nine weeks of Arctic wind blowing and snow, nine weeks of threats of polar bears. For the baby penguin in that egg, it is nine weeks of extreme vulnerability. And when the elements are at their very worst, do you know what the emperor penguins do to incubate their eggs? They clump together. They get together in this gigantic huddle And so the the penguins that are in the middle stay warm, and the penguins that are on the outside, they bear the brunt for a while of the wind and the cold and the chill. They look out for the polar bears, right? And then when they get too cold, they go into the middle and other people come to the outside. And for weeks upon weeks on weeks on end, they shift that way. Some standing on the outside bearing the brunt of the elements, others warm in the inside until the baby penguins hatch. And then the mothers return. And then the the male penguins who haven't eaten in nine weeks go off in search of food. But if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the things that Psalm 125 tells you is that you are the penguin that is perpetually and permanently situated in the middle of that huddle. You never have to go to the outside to bear the brunt of of, of the elements. You're always in the middle, surrounded. And protected, and you're not surrounded and protected just by other people, you're surrounded and protected by God Himself. So it leads us to a question, doesn't it? What does this mean? I mean, so what uncertainties and what vulnerabilities surround you? What are the, the winds and the snow and the polar bears of your life? If the social psychologists are to be believed, you're the you are the generation that was brought up in large part by fear. Not the generation that was brought up in fear. The generation that was brought up by fear. And do you know how I know that? Because I'm a culprit. I did it. I'm like this Gen X parent you know, who raised you know, children in, in your generation. Jonathan Haidt makes this point early and often in his book called The Coddling of the American Mind that the goal of Gen X parents like me has been to keep our children safe, safe from harm, safe from all kinds of harm, safe from physical harm, but also safe from failure, from disappointment, from ever feeling the sting of being left out, from not being really good at something, whether it's football or violin or Latin, just some good at something. We raised you to be safe. We're the genetic parents, we looked around all the corners, we smoothed out all the rough patches, got you the private coaches and the tutors for the SAT and you know, taught you how to juggle on a unicycle so you have something cool to write on your college essays. That's what we did. We, we, we also reminded you probably at least once a week, maybe not more, what class rank you had to have to get into Texas A&M automatically. That's what we did. And I'm sorry about that, it's kind of my bad, you know. We did that. But here's the thing, it didn't work, did it? I mean, it didn't really work. I mean, fear and vulnerability are still a part of your life, right? I mean, you're not safe. You don't feel safe from everything, certainly. And if you're a Christian, you may have fear on a college campus of someone even finding that fact out about you. You may fear that it would adversely affect your grade in a class or your prospects in a job interview or your reputation in a social group. Or you may fear the future, not knowing, you know, kind of what the future is going to hold for you. Or you may fear a a summer at home with a, a broken family or hidden addictions or anger or just getting dragged back into some patterns that you were hoping to be able to escape when you went to college. But in all of those things and more, what Psalm 125 tells you is that God surrounds you. He's with you. He's there with you, and not just momentarily. From this time forth and forevermore, he protects you from your enemies from without. But he also protects you from your enemies within. We see this in verse 3. The first thing that you see in verse 3 is a statement of confidence in the work of God. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. In other words, uh, the rule of wickedness will not take root and will not persist in the land of God's people. Now, this is an interesting thing to say because when this psalm was sung many years after it was written, even in the time of Jesus, for example, there had been good kings of Israel and there had been bad kings of Israel. There had been defeat, and there had been plundering, and there had been kidnapping by foreign powers from Assyria to Babylon. And if Jesus and his cadre were singing this going up to Jerusalem, as they probably were, they were going into a city even then that was occupied by a Roman power in Rome. So confidence in God's power and his protection is not necessarily tied to your circumstances. It's not tied to your present circumstances. But what the psalmist says is the scepter of wickedness will not rest on the land of Israel. In other words, in the words of the hymn, Beams of Heaven, while wickedness a while may reign, while Satan's cause may seem to gain, there is a God that reigns above. And the fulfillment of this statement of confidence, of course, is Jesus himself, the great God king of Israel, the ruler of the nations, the one who rules with justice and power and love. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're united to the one who protects you. And while that in no way promises you just a smooth life, with no bumps, without deep trials, without deep hardships, it does guarantee you this, evil will not win. It won't win in your own life. It won't win in the world. It will not win. Death will not win. Sickness will not win. Loneliness, depression, anxiety, abuse, falsehood, violence, none will win. Jesus will win. But that doesn't actually answer the ultimate question of why the scepter of wickedness Will not rest on Israel, because you may look at that passage. You might say, "Well, it's because that God is a God of righteousness and justice; He will judge evil and come to the aid of the righteousness." And this is true, and this is actually what the psalmist says in the last two verses of the psalm. But he says something really interesting here at the end of verse three. Listen to what he says: "Lest the righteous, says, the scepter of witness, will not rest on the land." Why? Lest the righteous stretch out their hands, and do wrong. The presence of evil is itself a temptation to the people of God to join into it. But what the psalm says is that God is gracious even in his restraint of you and of me reaching out and grabbing that scepter of wickedness. You know, if we're, all, if we're honest here, I think, I know that I am. This I know applies to me. But I think if we're all honest, we have to admit that sometimes we get jealous of people who kind of just live for themselves, right? They don't really give very much thought to God. They don't give much thought at all to Jesus. They just kind of live life for themselves. And I think that every once in a while, don't you ask yourself, if if you are a Christian, have you ever asked yourself, like, is this worth it? Like, is this really going anywhere? I mean, like, how much more fun could I be having if I could just put Jesus off in a drawer to the side and he would just leave me alone for a little while, right? You know, his guidance on, you know, what I do with my body. um, These sorts of things start to look, you know, a little bit constraining and prudish when you just look at them through the lives and the lens of all of the people around you instead of through the lens of God's Word or maybe you've completed an internship and and, and what you have seen in that internship are people who have really no moral qualms whatsoever about using other people as pawns or pawns in their own selfish ambition. They lied, they backstabbed, they cheated, they did whatever that they had to do and then what did you see? They got rewarded, they got promoted, they got raises and you start to think, I could do that. Or maybe you're interested in politics and what you see are people using all of the tools of the world, lies, innuendos, hearsay, pride, double standards, hypocrisy, to accomplish their goals. But then you start to think, but you know, in the end, it's all in the service of something I believe in, so whatever it takes, right? And you start to think, I can do that, I can do that. But what Psalm 125 says is that one of God's great acts of protection for you is that he restrains evil in the world so that you won't participate in it, so that you won't reach out your hand and grab it. That is grace indeed. That is a a forgotten aspect of God's grace, I think, that we should be really thankful for. So there's God's protection. There's also God's promise. We've already seen how God's protection and His promise overlap, but you see them here in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 is a prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, you may read those words and think, hold on just a second. What? Do good to those who are good? What, What are you saying here? Are you telling me that I should pray that God should base His goodness to me on how good of a person I am. Is that what he's saying here? And some of you may think about that and go, cool, because I'm a pretty good person. At least you can look to you know, your right or left and you can say, well, know I'm better than you, right? I'm, I'm, at, I'm at least a little bit better than you. But some of you are probably saying, well, if that's the case, what hope is there? I have no hope. I, I know that I'm not good. I know that I'm, God will never be good to me. Because there's one thing that I know, and that is that I am not good, so what's my hope? But look again closely at this text. Do good to those who are good. Do those who, good to those who are good. The psalmist does not say do good to those who do good. He says do good to those who are good. To do good is an imperative. Be a good person. Don't tell lies. Be nice. You know, those are all imperatives. But to Be a good person is an indicative. It is a fact about you. It's a fact about you. The good are not those who do enough good stuff to be perfect. You can't do enough good stuff for God to love you. The good are those who are good in the sight of God. In the context of Psalm 125, the good are God's people. The good are the people who have been called out from the rest of the world to be his own people. By his grace. The good are those whose sins are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good are those who are united to Christ by faith so that what belongs to him, his perfect obedience on your behalf, is now reckoned as true for you. And God will do you good. Yeah, you're going to walk through a lot of valleys. You're going to walk through a lot of pain in your life. You're going to walk through a lot of suffering in your life. Evil and falsehood will even at times look like it's prevailing and winning. But as our final verse in Psalm 125 reminds us, it is not. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. God will defeat evil. And those who perpetrate evil, he will. And that makes his final words both true and incredibly encouraging, and meaningful. After he goes through all of this, peace be upon Israel. God's got you. He's got you in his hand. I know it's hard. I know it looks bleak sometimes. I know it feels painful a lot of the times. But he's got you. You're surrounded in him. Peace be upon you because God is with you. While I was working on this sermon earlier this week, I was reading uh, the paper online, and I saw an article about the death of a musician whose name was Jane, who went by the stage name Nightbird. Maybe you have heard of her, maybe you saw her on America's Got Talent, but if you didn't, you can Google her audition where she auditioned and got the golden buzzer from Simon. It's all very, uh, very powerful. At the time of her audition on America's Got uh, Talent, Nightbird was 30 years old, was in the middle of her third bout with cancer, and had recently been left by her husband, who decided that after all of that, he just didn't want to be with her anymore. Super intense pain, super intense suffering. But she also had a strange sense of peace about her. She had a radiance, even a joy. I don't think that the uh, Americans Got Talent judges could figure it out. They, they could not figure it out. But Jane put it in her own words in a blog post that she wrote for March of last year. And the blog post was titled, God is on the bathroom floor. And here are some experts about how she experienced her relationship with God in the midst of intense personal trauma and intense true Physical and emotional pain. She said, I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout on the bathroom floor. I'm sad too. If you can't see him, she says, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. In Psalm 125, as in all of our lives, Confidence and lament, joy and pain, laughter and tears, they coexist. But you're not alone. You're not abandoned. You're not vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one, your enemy. You are protected, surrounded even, By God, and He promises good to all who trust by faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us, that in the deep, deep darkness of our lives and of this world, you promise never to leave us or forsake us. Sometimes it is hard for us to believe that is true, but we do. We believe and and, and we read these words with confidence, Father. I pray for all those who are here walking out of this place into the darkness, into the cold tonight, into the unknown of their lives and this university and the world, that you would surround them, surround them, protect them, strengthen them, give them joy even in their times of sorrow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If y'all are interested in joining us for a future worship night, we would absolutely love to see y'all at All Face Chapel uh, on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events that we might be putting on throughout the semester. Uh, Thank y'all so much for listening, and we hope to see y'all around sometime.